You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Hey, Alex, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Good morning, Kathy, and good morning to our listeners. How is uh, the busy season going for you? Um, it's a lot of hustle and bustle it here is. at the station, for sure, but it's all wor- well worth it. Of course, of course, the station does some wonderful programming. It's a little tiring, though. I'm feeling a little tired myself today, actually. I did some baking last night. Oh, okay. It's funny, when we start with these traditions when the kids are young and they really want to keep them going as they're now adults, it's uh, it's it's trying to get fit in all these things during uh, during the season. It's, uh, it comes yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things. For me, for me I, I like baking as well. And when Christmas time rolls around it's like the ideal time to get with the family and Mm -hmm. and start baking in the kitchen for me anyway it's and i i try try to you know not rush these things so that i can enjoy them but getting everything uh in you know the weekends fill up the Mm -hmm. nights fill up but it's uh yeah so it can be a a little bit tiring but uh i do like doing it i only really bake like bake bake once a year and i'm not allowed to change anything so it's the same five or six recipes every year but it's uh that's something a nice we do. Tradition. It is. It is. But we're trying to, you know, with the kids doing all their different things. Right now, we have a tree in our living room with nothing on it, and we're trying to figure out a time to decorate it. Oh, so that beats me. I haven't yeah. got my Christmas tree up yet. We just went last uh, on Sunday. It was really nice. The weather was nice. The trees were beautiful, and uh, yeah, so it's up there waiting for it to waiting for people to decorate it. So. I guess what we have to do now is just go with the majority, but uh, such is life. We try and get all these things done, but such a busy time of year, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Our show today is live. You can call in at 416-245-1534. Please do follow us on all of our social media sites. We have great information for you on upcoming shows, some little tidbits and so forth. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And our email is thh at radiomaria.ca. And thank you, everyone, for the great feedback that we're getting as we uh, set up our lineup for 2019. It's really a nice time for you to give your input on... Uh, guests that you might like to have on the show, future topics, any health concerns or interests that are that are weighing on you, please let us know and we will do our best to accommodate you. Please subscribe to our podcast as well. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast both on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is uh, www.kathybiasse.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a comment. Our show last week, Managing Type 1 Diabetes with Dr. Jody Stanislaw, is up and ready for you to listen to. Another great 
podcast with lots of great information. Type 1 diabetes is uh, was the first time we tackled that on our show. And um, nice to get alternative uh, as well as the allopathic Im- uh, input on um, on type one diabetes, it it affects more people than we may know. As as Lyme disease uh, may affect more people than than we actually know, and that's our our topic for our show today. But before we get on to introducing our guest, Dr. Darren Ingalls, now is the time to get your bone broth made. In fact, this morning my daughter woke up with a sore throat. She felt like she said she swallowed a golf ball. And uh, tis the season, tis the season. And usually my uh, rotation of illness usually hits around December 23rd. I'm not quite sure why, I guess stress and tiredness, but it seems to start off with the kids early in December and then rotates through us, uh, you know, hitting us during the holiday. But uh, we try our best to to uh, bulk up our immune system. And bone broth is a great one to have in your freezer. Just texted my daughter, said, pull it out and uh, thaw it. Bone broth is a great source of collagen, minerals, glutamine, a whole bunch, a whole host of great uh, nutrients in it. And it's good for the joints, for your skin, and it's very good for your gut health. And when you improve your gut health, you strengthen your immune system. So a really great, simple piece of nutrition to have in your freezer. Bone broth contains L-glutamine, and this really helps to heal your gut and to decrease inflammation. And you all know that when your gut is in good shape, the rest of your health will follow in tow. Amino acids in bone broth, uh, again, are part of what helps to improve the immune system. And adding apple cider vinegar to your bone broth increases the flavor. That It's a nice part of it. But uh, it's often a step that many people miss. But adding apple cider vinegar really helps to pull out important minerals from the bones into the liquid. So don't um, leave that step out of the process. It's important. So what I wanted to do today, very quickly before we start our show, is to um, tell you how to make a good bone broth, give you a couple of tips to make a successful bone broth. So a couple of tips off the top here, buy organic or grass fed beef bones if possible. What the process here is that you're doing is you're putting these bones into a steep, into fluid, into water for a long period of time. And what you want to leach out is healthy products. So always remember Know your sources of food. As your food sources go, so does the nutritional value of it. So trying to buy organic grass-fed bones are the best. Organic chicken bones. Um, You can use beef, chicken. You can even use chicken feed. All of these things are just full of great nutrients for you. For better flavor for your bone broth... Use bones that have been cooked. So if you're going to use a turkey carcass, that's fine. It's already done. But if you've got raw bones, I put mine in the oven at 350 or 180 uh, Celsius with a, a few seasonings on them just to increase the flavor of the bone broth. And again, make sure you add that apple cider vinegar. Um, and I try to make my bone broth towards the end of the week. What I'm going to give you is just the bare bones of a bone broth. But I throw in all, you know, the, at the end of the week, any vegetables that we might not have used. So I, I, I really try and, and, and jack up the flavor with using a whole bunch of herbs and um, bay leaves and seasonings 
and uh, different vegetables. So you can use bone broth and you can sip it as is, or you can use it as the basis for soups or gravies. So just a, a wonderful, wholesome product to have. So here it is, the, the sort of the basic, uh, the bare bones, I might say, of a bone broth. So start with about two pounds of bones. Again, it can be beef, chicken, a mixture, um, or a whole chicken carcass that's cooked. Make sure you put your bones in the oven. I add a couple of carrots. I add an onion. I add some celery stalks. I definitely add some garlic, about a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, some sea salt, parsley, but any seasonings that you want, a bay leaf, and about six cups of water. And again, this is just sort of the the basics of a bone broth. Be creative, add tomatoes, add whatever you like. And I don't even take the um, the skins off of, I wash all my vegetables, but because you're going to be dumping the broth out and, and uh, putting it through a sieve, I just add everything in because the skins do have some very good nutrients in them as well. So that is another little tip thrown in there. So you're, what you're going to do is place your bones in a slow cooker and all of your other ingredients and let this um, very slowly steep for at least 12 hours. A slow cooker, I find, is the best way to do it. If you don't have one, then very, very low temperature on your stove. Um, And after 12 to 24 hours, you're going to siphon this thing, um, the pot through. You're going to take everything out and you're just going to have that bone broth and you can freeze this. You can use it right away. um, But now is the time to make it. It will freeze for up to about six months. I wouldn't keep it any longer. But um, do make some. As I said, now is the time for cold and flu and uh, a great addition to your pantry. So along to our show today, our guest is Dr. Darren Ingalls. He is a respected leader in natural medicine with more than 28 years experience in the healthcare field. He is a board certified in integrated pediatrics and a fellow of the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. Dr. Ingalls has been published extensively and is the author of The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease, a comprehensive natural approach to treating Lyme disease. He specializes in Lyme disease, autism, and chronic immune dysfunction. He uses diets, nutrients, herbs, and homeopathy immunotherapy to help his patients achieve better health. So today's learning points, among many, are we will be talking about what is Lyme disease, what are the common symptoms of Lyme disease, and is there a cure for Lyme disease? And we will be back right after our break.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show is live today. Feel free to call us at 416-245-1534. And once again, do follow us on our social sites on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are the Health Hub at R. We are at the Health Hub RMC. And our email is THH at RadioMaria.ca. Good morning, Dr. Ingalls. Thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning, Kathy. Where are we calling you from? You're in California? I'm in Southern California. Beautiful and sunny. Beautiful and sunny. Uh, everything is good there now. I guess yeah. you weren't too too affected by the, the fires. They were more north. Uh, well, we had some fires down here in Southern California, but fortunately for where I am, I'm about uh, two hours away from where they occurred. So uh, we didn't really get uh, a lot down in our neck of the woods. But uh, yeah, it's up in uh, near the Malibu area and then another set of fires up near uh, the Bay Area. Both were severely affected. So just an absolute tragedy. But uh, I think all that's uh, quieted down at this point. That's good. I was just in California last year and we just got out before they, uh, last year's round of fires. So uh, all the best to everybody there. It's uh, very unfortunate. But on to uh, our topic today. How did you get involved with the study and treatment of Lyme disease? Well, uh, quite simply, I got Lyme disease myself. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I uh, had moved out to Connecticut uh, after medical school, and I was about two or three weeks from opening my own practice in 2002, and I started getting very ill and uh, realized that uh, the symptoms were very consistent with Lyme, and uh, I didn't realize at the time when I was getting all of the symptoms, I had a very high fever and joint pain and a terrible headache and numbness and tingling in my hands and feet. And I was actually getting ready to uh, go to the hospital, and then uh, someone had noticed that I had a big bullseye rash on the back of my leg. And because it was on the back of my leg, I wasn't able to see it. So at that point, I realized it was Lyme disease, and I started uh, treatment right away. Uh, and really within about four days, I felt perfectly fine. But since I was in the middle of opening my business, and if anyone's ever owned their own business, they know what it's like where you work very long hours. And after about eight months of working, you know, 10, 12, 14-hour days, I started to relapse. And when I started treatment again, it didn't help. And I kept changing treatment, and it didn't help. And I really went through about nine months of antibiotics and got worse and worse. So I was fortunate to have come across a Chinese medical doctor in New York City. Uh, I was living in Connecticut at the time. And uh, he started treating me with Chinese herbal medicine. And within a few weeks, I really improved about 85%. So it was a good reminder to me to kind of get back to my naturopathic roots and really start examining, you know, what I was doing in my life, what I was eating. I wasn't sleeping very well and really started taking better care of myself, plus implementing, you know, the, the herbal protocol. And that combination really is what kind of got me feeling better. But it took about two years to get through that process before I really felt like I was, you know, back to myself again. So it was a long process, but uh, it was obviously a good uh, learning experience in uh, how to deal with Lyme disease. Are the, okay, let's, there's so many things that just came out of that. Um, are there certain regions more affected? So let, let's start, start with what exactly is Lyme disease, and then we'll get into the other specifics. Sure. Well, Lyme disease is a bacterial infection, and it's primarily transmitted through certain types of tick bites. And if you look at a map of where these ticks live, most of them live up in New England and the United States and the central part of the U.S. 
However, what we've seen over the last uh, couple of decades is that, you know, these ticks have now migrated away from those areas. It's now all up and down the east and west coast of the United States and pushing in towards the central part of the U.S. So in the United States, Lyme disease has been reported in every single state. So you really, there's no place that you're completely immune. But the vast majority of cases uh, still are really kind of along the coast of the United States and then sort of that central part of the U.S., which is, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota. So those states that are sort of just south of Ontario in Canada. And uh, so, you know, the tick bites you, it transmits this bacteria into your bloodstream, and once that bacteria gets into the bloodstream, it triggers that cascade of symptoms, which uh, we'll probably go to in just a little bit. But, you know, it's really uh, unlike other bacterial infections like sinus infections and bronchitis, you know, this is a bacteria that's very slow-growing, uh, very clever. It learns how to evade the immune system, so, you know, therefore it becomes a little bit more difficult to treat. The, you know, just doing a little bit of research beforehand, one of the things as I was, um, you know, just trying to get my bearings straight with Lyme disease, it's not something that, uh, knock on wood, I am familiar with, nor have I known anybody with it. So again, knock on wood. Um, but one of the things that popped up first thing on Google was um, I, I just typed in Lyme disease and it was, is Lyme disease real? And, you know, the... It's. It seems to be the. Uh, uh, it's been a contentious issue about Lyme disease and its journey to sort of validate that this is a, a true disease. Is that the case, or is it just uh, a bad Google search? Doctor Ingalls, are you with us? Oh, I think we've lost him. We'll try and contact uh, him. Hmm, that's too bad. Okay, we'll get back to him. Yeah, I have never actually, as I said, met, and I'm again knocking on wood, met or known, or even in clinic, um, known anybody with Lyme disease. I think probably, um, I think maybe the first attention I've had brought uh, to me was, I think Avril Lavigne had it. And um, I think when we get Dr. Ingalls back on the phone, we're going to find out that it's a little bit hard, a harder disease to sort of pinpoint and we're going to get into the symptomatology um, of it. But I think perhaps, and again, I may be wrong about this, that bullseye is the very first symptom. Oh, do we have him here? Dr. Ingalls, are you on with us? Yeah, sorry about that. That's Somehow no we got cut off. Yeah, no problem at all. I tried to fill the space with intelligent conversation. <laughs> it's always like a second recognition that I'm talking to myself and then, and then oh, okay, okay, no problem. So um, where we left off was, as I was saying, I was doing a little bit of research and one of the things that popped up is Lyme disease real. So has it been a yeah. contentious issue to try and validate this disease? Yeah, you know, it really has been. And the the primary reason is that the Lyme testing is very controversial. Uh, unfortunately, the tests that are available are really just not very accurate. So, you know, having a reliable test that, you know, is definitive that someone has Lyme disease has really been lacking. And, you know, in 40 years of research of understanding Lyme, you know, we've still really yet to have a test that's really 100% conclusive because often what we're really measuring is the immune response to having had exposure to Lyme. So theoretically, someone could have bitten by a tick 
got exposed to the organism. And if your immune system does what it's supposed to do, it'll make antibodies against Lyme. And, uh, you know, that's the end of that. You may never get to a point where you're even symptomatic. So when you're measuring antibodies in somebody's blood, all you've really demonstrated is that they've had exposure. But, you know, the sensitivity of the test that's currently available, or at least the commercial test that most people use, uh, it just really isn't that sensitive. And when you look at the research, uh, it shows it's actually about 43% sensitive, which means that it doesn't even pick up half the people that have Lyme disease. So, you know, Lyme really becomes a, a clinical diagnosis, which means it's based on your signs and symptoms and less on a lab test proving that you have it. And because the symptoms of Lyme disease can often be very vague and look like a lot of other things, you know, we get into this, you know, contentious debate with other practitioners about, well, do you have Lyme? Do you not have Lyme? Uh, so, you know, most of us that treat a lot of Lyme disease, we really are, you know, fundamentally basing it more on people's symptoms. And if we get a piece of paper that demonstrates that they've had exposure, you know, that combination of exposure plus having symptoms, particularly if you live in an area that's endemic, you know, I was always kind of taught in medical school, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So, you know, Lyme is kind of the same thing that when you've got the clinical symptoms, you've got evidence of exposure, you know, you can kind of put two and two together. But, you know, the Infectious Disease Society of America, which is the big infectious disease group in the United States, you know, they have taken a very conservative approach to Lyme disease. Uh, they think it's a fairly short-lived infection, and if you just take antibiotics for two or three weeks, that gets rid of it, and that's the end of that. But, again, I think for most of us that are in the Lyme world, uh, we feel quite a bit differently. Okay, uh, just clear something up for me. So when you're testing, are you testing for a particular type of bacteria? Yeah, so the test that's available is looking at one particular strain of Lyme. The organism itself is called Borrelia. And the first uh, strain that we identified back in the, you know, early 80s uh, was called Borrelia burgdorferi. Uh, we've now learned since that there are many, many strains of Borrelia, not just Borrelia burgdorferi. So in the United States alone, there's about 100 different strains, and worldwide there's about 300 different strains. And yet the test that's available really is looking at one of them. So it's also highly possible that, you know, someone gets exposed to a different strain, and that test just isn't looking at the right one. So that's just, you know, one of the many uh, factors that plays into, you know, whether someone tests positive or not. And how long can this stay in your system before it manifests into symptomology? Well, once someone gets exposed, the symptoms can start anywhere from three to up to 30 days or potentially longer. Uh, you know, if you look at the research, uh, three to 30 days is what we typically observe. However, I have worked with people that, as far as we can tell, their exposure may have occurred many, many years prior to the onset of symptoms. So I think it's certainly possible that someone could get exposed, and at the time, if their immune system is very healthy, uh, they don't express any symptoms, but the organism may still stay in a dormant phase. And then once they go through a period of stress or their immune system is compromised, then the symptoms start to crop out and people become more symptomatic. Maybe we could go over some of the major symptoms and, um, and see how they fit into other diseases and why this area of uncertainty arises. So what are the major symptoms of Lyme disease? 
Well, the two classic symptoms that we associate with Lyme disease, one is with a certain kind of rash called erythema migrans or a bullseye rash. So it's a very unique uh, characteristic rash that literally looks like a bullseye or a target where you'll see alternating concentric rings of, you know, red, clear, red, clear. Uh, there really are no other infections that we know that cause that particular kind of rash. So that's a really a, a telltale sign of Lyme. The other thing that's very characteristic is what we call migratory joint pain, uh, where you know one day it's your right shoulder, the next day it's your left knee, the next day it's your right ankle. You know, joint pain that seems to kind of wander from joint to joint is also very characteristic of Lyme because other types of you know autoimmune diseases, rheumatological problems, it tends to be the same joints fairly consistently. So those are sort of the two hallmark uh, symptoms we see with Lyme, but there's upwards of you know 80 to 100 different symptoms associated with Lyme. Some of the more common ones are you know fever, chills, joint pain, muscle aches, numbness and tingling, particularly in the hands and feet. Uh, fatigue is a big one. Chronic you know swollen glands, uh, headaches, dizziness, uh, heart palpitations, shortness of breath. Uh, you know, it's a pretty lengthy list. Uh, there's also a condition called Bell's palsy where one side of your face looks like it starts to droop. You know, those are all associated with Lyme. But, you know, they call Lyme the great imitator, the great mimic, because it looks like so many different things. So part of diagnosing Lyme is not just trying to identify if you've had exposure, but also the process of ruling out other possibilities. So it could take quite a long time in the, in the medical field to, to get this diagnosis? Or do you find that this is uh, being diagnosed more in the alternative health field? Well, you know, I think what happens is, you know, for the people that have acute classic Lyme disease, they're pretty easily identified. Again, you know, if you get the bullseye rash, if you get these other symptoms, you know, that bullseye rash for being a characteristic uh, symptom of Lyme, unfortunately, again, less than half the people who get Lyme disease actually develop that rash. So, you know, we can't rely on that as a, you know, sole marker about whether someone's been exposed or not. So I think you know, what's happened in the alternative world is that you know, we're seeing a lot of people who have been to several doctors that have Lyme, and either the doctor never looked for it or perhaps you know, just didn't look for it quite in the right way. Uh, so we, I, I certainly find a lot of people that have been to numerous doctors with these various complaints for many years that uh, you know, a lot of times they've never even been tested for Lyme. Uh, there are labs out there, fortunately, that I think do a better job of testing, so those are the labs that we tend to use. But, uh, you know, if you don't look for it, you won't find it. And uh, I think, you know, that's one area that uh, you'll probably find a lot of alternative doctors are a little bit more focused on. And, and not just Lyme itself, but I think, you know, any kind of, you know, chronic infection as an underlying cause of illness is, is pretty typical. Okay. And just before we go to break, that uh, bullseye rash, is that the site of the, of the bite or is that yeah, not? It is? Yeah. Okay. That's the site of the bite. So when people get this rash, it's usually a single lesion. Uh, once in a blue moon, we do see people that have multiple, but by and large, it's one tick, one bite, and then you'll see one area. And the ticks like the, the areas of the body that are kind of, you know, dark and moist, so it likes behind the knee, in the armpit, in the hairline. So that's why a lot of people, even if they get the rash, they don't necessarily see it because it just goes to areas of the body they typically don't, don't look at. And then that rash will go away after a short amount of time. Time. So if you haven't caught it, you're into this sort of quagmire of what's going on. Yeah. And once you get the rash, if you do develop it, it actually it takes several weeks. I know when I got bit, it took three months before my rash actually dissipated. Oh, okay. So it can sometimes last quite a while. 
Okay, great. We're going to go to break. And when we get back, I want to get into the meat and potatoes of your book and how uh, the common treatments, both in the medical and the um, complementary health field, are working with Lyme disease. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. All related Brothers and strangers The king and the beggar Bleed the same We've all got a sickness A terminal condition We medicate it But the pain won't go away See the eyes of a million faces Looking for it in a million places Only one can save us Jesus To the orphan without a home We fell in the darkness Lost till you found us You're the remedy we're looking for You You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're here talking with Dr. Ingalls about Lyme disease. Dr. Ingalls, um, Karen sent in a question, and I think this is going to open um, 
a large topic of the second half of the show. And her question is, do symptoms of Lyme disease present similarly in other autoimmune diseases? So let's set that question up um, for you to hit out of the park by first describing how Lyme disease and autoimmune diseases are connected. Well, they're connected, uh, certainly symptomatically. There's a lot of overlap in the kind of symptoms that we see with autoimmune disease and Lyme. But, again, we have evidence in, in research that Lyme itself becomes a trigger for autoimmunity, as does several other microbes. So, you know, Lyme, in addition to causing an infection, actually has the ability to trigger the immune system, that part that actually is associated with autoimmunity. So Lyme can target uh, really a couple of specific proteins in the nervous system especially uh, that cause a lot of the neurological symptoms, but it cross-reacts again with some of the proteins in your connective tissue. So that's why you get the joint pain, the muscle aches, and things of that nature. So it's really that combination of, you know, what the infection itself does plus its ability to trigger an autoimmune reaction. And the autoimmune reaction is quite a bit different than what we see in something like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. But, you know, for example, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, I think every patient I've seen in my practice who's been diagnosed with MS, uh, often we find, you know, Lyme. So, you know, is it possible that Lyme is a trigger for MS? Uh, My opinion is yes. You know, if you go to the neurologist and they give you this diagnosis and you say, well, why? You know, they're going to shrug their shoulders. And, again, I think we've got pretty ample evidence that microbes do become triggers for autoimmunity. So uh, I've had plenty of uh, MS patients. Uh, I mean, my Lyme turned into MS, so (laughs) I experienced it myself. And, uh, you know, when we treat their Lyme, you know, their MS gets better. But we've also seen this with, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and Lou Gehrig's disease and a lot of these chronic neurological symptoms. Uh, In fact, there was a very famous case, uh, Chris Christopherson, the actor and the singer, was diagnosed with very early dementia, uh, was found to have Lyme disease. And when he treated his Lyme disease, his dementia completely went away. So, uh, again, any of these chronic neurological or autoimmune issues, uh, it certainly doesn't have to be Lyme, but it certainly should be something that should be checked off the list. That's a fascinating point. Okay, so that brings up a couple of questions in in my mind. Is it, um, if someone has an autoimmune disease prior to getting um, a bite, does this set somebody up for worse symptoms or does it set somebody up to be more than likely to have symptomology of Lyme disease? Um, Does an underlying inflammation, I guess, um, cause greater degree of symptomology with Lyme disease? Yeah, that's a great question. As far as I know, I've never read anything that specifically looked at people that had previous autoimmune disease. My my guess, though, is that for someone who's already immune compromised or already has a dysfunctional immune system, getting Lyme disease probably just like throwing gas on the fire. It probably makes things a lot worse. Again, I think for what the infection would do, plus sort of adding to the autoimmune burden, uh, it seems logical that, you know, the symptoms perhaps would worsen. Okay, so then if, um, if you get bitten and this triggers an autoimmune response and that leads to a disease, is that, you know, once we get past the bite, is what you're treating actually the autoimmune disease? 
It really is. You know, what I've learned is that, you know, just focusing on eradicating the organism is just a, a small part of the overall treatment. You know, it's really about fixing the terrain. You know, we've got to get the body in better working order. And I think, again, if you put, you know, 100 people in the room, they all got infected with the Lyme organism, not everybody would get Lyme disease. So what's the difference? And I think the difference is in how our immune system, you know, handles this organism. So I think if we can focus on, you know, treating the person, really getting to the, you know, core problems of, you know, dealing with, you know, gut health and immune health, uh, you know, part of the treatment does involve, you know, helping to eradicate the organism, but it's a much, much larger, you know, overarching uh, view of, you know, how we treat the individual. Okay, then that sort of begs the question in my mind, can you cure Lyme disease? You know, that question gets asked a lot, and uh, the C word in medicine is always, you know, <laughs> used very uh, sporadically. You know, the problem we have with Lyme is that we don't know that you ever get rid of the organism 100% because we can't easily measure the organism in your body. So I am of the opinion that I don't know that we ever get rid of the organism completely. I've had plenty of patients over the years that go, you know, long periods of time of being symptom-free, and then they relapse. So is it a new infection, or is it really just the old infection that popped up again? Um, you know, we just, we just don't know for sure. I mean, certainly I think it's possible, and uh, I've experienced it where people get to the point where, you know, they are living 100% symptom-free. So if we call that cure, then, yes, they're cured. Um, but I think there's always the possibility that if the immune system's compromised, symptoms may return. Um, and we see a lot of people that have gone in and out of periods of being symptom-free and then symptomatic, and, you know, this goes on for several years. So, again, I think it still comes back to, you know, treating the terrain, treating the person, and helping their body, you know, manage this organism without having symptoms. Okay. Can you do a side-by-side -side comparison of the allopathic treatment of Lyme disease versus your care for someone with Lyme disease? Sure. Well, the conventional allopathic approach to Lyme disease is 10 to 21 days of antibiotics. Uh, typically, they're oral antibiotics. There is a recommendation from the CDC that if someone has neurological Lyme disease symptoms, that IV antibiotics would be preferential, but still it's for up to about three weeks. And at that point, you're done. You know, whether your, your symptoms have resolved or not, that's it. So it's a very short-acting uh, treatment that only focuses on killing the bug, and that's pretty much it. You know, uh, my approach is much different. Uh, I rarely, rarely use antibiotics in my treatment protocol anymore. You know, I think particularly anyone with chronic Lyme disease, we have some evidence that antibiotics are not nearly as effective for someone with chronic Lyme. I think they're great for acute Lyme disease, uh, but once you've had it for a while, they seem to be less effective. Plus, when you're on antibiotics, you know, long-term, they can damage your normal gut flora, which we've now learned that are critically important for modulating your immune system and just a whole host of other, you know, health benefits. So we, we damage your gut flora, plus some of the antibiotics actually damage these things called mitochondria, and these are the parts of the cell that literally give you energy. So for people that have, you know, chronic fatigue, damaging your mitochondria that you need to make energy, it just sort of makes the symptom worse. So uh, my approach is really, you know, dealing with, you know, how do we, you know, get the gut in better working order because, you know, up to 80% of your immune function comes from the gut. So we have to have a healthy functioning gut. 
And then I talk about, you know, managing diet, making sure you're eating the right things that work with your body instead of against it. And then I've got different herbal protocols that help, you know, deal with the infection to keep the microbial load down. And then it's also looking at all the other environmental and lifestyle factors that influence health. You know, people who, you know, drink too much, smoke too much, don't sleep well, don't exercise. You know, it's really about implementing all these lifestyle changes, managing stress, uh, dealing with all the mind-body issues that comes up for someone, particularly when they have a chronic illness. So, again, I think it's a, a much more comprehensive approach of looking at the individual versus just treating that one little segment of Lyme. Um, just going back to the antibiotics, I, I, again, with uh, trying to, you know, wade through my understanding of this, how can the antibiotics help if what you are dealing with is now the Lyme or the autoimmune disease? Am I, am I to understand that you are always going to have um, some of this bacteria in your system? Well, again, you know, this is an area that we don't completely understand, and I don't think necessarily everybody who gets Lyme develops those autoimmune symptoms. It's something that can happen, and I think the more persistent the organism is, the greater the probability that that does happen. But for someone, again, who identifies that they've been infected early, you know, they go on antibiotics, you know, you may be able to get rid of the organism, you know, fast enough that it never gets to a point where it triggers that part of your immune system to develop autoimmunity. So certainly not everybody who gets Lyme disease gets an autoimmune issue. But, again, I think for someone with chronic Lyme, uh, the longer they've had it, you know, the greater the probability that that happens. But will antibiotics, you know, if someone's been suffering this or suffers this uh, for years, do antibiotics offer any benefit uh, once the autoimmune disease has kicked in? Well, you know, this is probably varying opinions, and uh, I certainly know a lot of other Lyme doctors that are primarily antibiotic uh, prescribers, and they will tell you that they've had a lot of patients that have benefited from antibiotic therapy. Um, my experience is such that I see a lot of people that, you know, if they've had chronic Lyme and they go on antibiotics, they might get temporary relief, and often within days to weeks of stopping the antibiotics, they regress and they're kind of back to square one. Uh, some of the new antibiotic regimens that are being used are actually very toxic. And in fact, the latest one, uh, you know, you have to go in every week to get your blood drawn to make sure it's not damaging your kidneys and your mm -hmm. liver. Um, so there is that element of toxicity that's possible with some of the regimens. And, of course, the longer you're on the antibiotics, um, you know, the greater the risk of having some of these side effects. You know, there's another uh, faction of doctors out there. Uh, the group is called ILADS. It's the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. So they are very different than the infectious disease doctors where they are much more willing to treat Lyme based on clinical symptoms. They will use longer courses of antibiotics. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a different approach. And if it works for you, great. Uh, again, I see the people where that approach has generally failed and they're looking for a different alternative. But again, when you look at the research, uh, most of the research out there on, you know, chronic antibiotic use, uh, it hasn't been very impressive. So you've written a new book. It's called uh, The Lyme uh, Solution. Now, have people taken well to this book? Are they understanding what you're saying? And do you feel that the tide is changing, that people are now sort of registering that maybe there is Lyme disease involved in all the symptomology that's going on with me? Are you finding that um, people are asking more questions because of the impetus of what you've put out? 
Yeah, and I've gotten a lot of, you know, really uh, good feedback on the book, and I get a lot of people who contact me that just say, hey, look, you know, I've had this constellation of symptoms for, you know, months, years. You know, my doctor doesn't believe it's Lyme. You know, they've never tested me. Uh, one of the things I have in a book is I have a questionnaire that people can take that uh, can sort of, you know, help identify whether, you know, Lyme might be part of the issue uh, just based on the symptoms alone. Uh, Dr. Richard Horowitz, who's really one of the gurus in the Lyme world, in his book, he has a much, much longer questionnaire that's actually been validated in research and find it's a very reliable marker about whether someone may or may not have Lyme. So I have kind of a consolidated version of that. But, uh, you know, people can use that questionnaire as a tool as just a way to help identify whether, you know, these chronic issues may be related to Lyme. So no issue with sort of self-diagnosing looking through this uh, questionnaire because uh, your book offers these solutions that, that can do no harm. Well, you know, my book is written for people, uh, for the patient, you know, because I just come across so many people that are in areas where they just don't have a practitioner to work with who understands Lyme or is at least willing to even look at it. So, yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, I'd love for people to be in the hands of someone who really understands Lyme and these co-infections who can give, you know, very clear guidance on how to manage their care but also understanding that there's just so many people out there that just aren't getting the help they need. So I wanted people to have a tool that they could use on their own, and there's nothing in here that's harmful, dangerous. You know, everything in here, again, really works well with your body. But, you know, it's always my advice. If you can get, you know, under the care of someone who understands Lyme, I I think it's much better for you. Now, can people use this book in combination with medical treatment? Yeah, and I do have people who do that as well. I mean, certainly when you're talking about things to help heal your gut, you know, a diet you can follow, I mean, all that could be done in conjunction with antibiotic therapy. So I have some people who will still use this even when they're on antibiotics. And if they're on it, fine. If they're not on it, fine. I mean, you know, this all still works, again, to kind of help fix the terrain, as I mentioned earlier. So um, there's nothing in here that's uh, contraindicated with antibiotic therapy. Can we go step-by-step step through your book to give people a good understanding of how this can help them? Because as we talked about, a lot of Lyme disease goes undiagnosed, and I can imagine that people are listening right now and maybe associating or thinking now some of the symptomology that they have may be associated. We're in Ontario, so that, that's a, an area of Lyme disease, Correct. Uh, yeah, you know, in Canada, it's really interesting. Uh, in fact, I just gave a lecture in Toronto earlier this year, and so I was doing a lot of, you know, research on Canadian stats. Uh, United States reports about 300,000 new cases of Lyme a year. In Canada, overall, there's less than 1,000 cases reported. And of those 900 and I think 97 cases in Canada, most of them came from Ontario, Quebec, and I think Nova Scotia. So, you know, it, it's kind of aligned with where we see it in the U.S., but I'm, it, it just seemed kind of odd that there's such a huge disparity in what we see in the U.S. and what they're reporting in Canada. So I think the Canadian uh, reports are grossly underestimated. I mean, as far as I know, ticks don't stop at the border. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, all those neighboring states, you know, we see such a, a high endemic uh, incidence of Lyme that I don't know why the Canadian provinces that are adjacent would be so much lower. It just doesn't make any sense. Okay, uh, we did have a question come in, and it is, is um, Lyme disease contagious? 
You know, that's a great question. Uh, in terms of contagious, you know, there's different ways, you know, contagious diseases are transmitted, you know, whether you cough on someone through, you know, sexual contact. Uh, I think the question I get asked probably the most is really through sexual contact. And, uh, you know, the research is really lacking. There's very little. Uh, there was a study that came out not too long ago that found that uh, people with Lyme, you can find it in women's vaginal secretions and in the semen of men. Uh, however, they've not demonstrated that it's necessarily transmitted. Uh, I think I take a conservative approach, and for someone who has Lyme, and I, I do advocate using barrier methods with your partner to protect them because we don't know, uh, but the research really is lacking. But in terms of coughing on someone, that's not the way you really get Lyme disease, so I don't think that's possible. There is possibility of, you know, getting it potentially through sexual contact, although, again, the research hasn't shown that yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that may be the most likely way. And we do have evidence it is transmitted from mom to baby. So moms that have Lyme disease, uh, we really try to make sure they get good treatment during their pregnancy so it reduces the risk of their child developing Lyme or any kind of developmental issue. Okay. Um, now let's go step by step. You offer a five-step plan in your book. So maybe we can take uh, the remainder of the show and really give people an understanding of what you're offering in your, in your uh, book. Sure. Well, step one, is, again, is really about gut health. You know, kind of you topped off the show talking about bone broth and things to help the gut. You know, we just know that the gut is the cornerstone of health. And uh, certainly from the immune system, you know, I said up to 80% of your immune function comes from the gut. And I see so many people with Lyme that have a history of chronic constipation, gas, bloating, diarrhea, you know, whatever it is. So uh, I give you very specific recommendations on what you can do to help heal your gut make sure that you're digesting and eliminating your food properly. And, you know, the better we can get your gut working, you know, the better your immune system is going to function. And, again, we have a lot of really good evidence that when your gut ecology is off, you know, your disposition towards autoimmunity also goes up. So it's another way to help reduce your risk of, of autoimmune disease. Uh, the second step is really about diet. Uh, the diet I talk about in the book is what we call an alkaline diet. And uh, an alkaline diet is really about eating foods that promote better uh, pH in your body. You know, your, your cells function best in an alkaline pH with the exception of the stomach, the bladder, and for women, the vaginal area, which are very acidic to protect against outside invaders. The rest of your body is actually very alkaline. And this has nothing to do with changing blood pH. Blood pH is very stable. It doesn't fluctuate. So, uh, again, there's very little research out there on alkaline diet, although it's been promoted for decades. Uh, but the studies that have been done have been very positive in terms of how it changes your physiology. So in a nutshell, you know, a, uh, it's mostly a plant-based diet. Uh, we try and limit animal proteins to about 20% of your total dietary intake, and it's really removing any processed or refined foods uh, or anything that are highly acidic, so things like coffee and dairy products and, again, junk foods. So it's, it's, it's nice because it's a diet that people can actually follow. It's not a calorie-restricted diet, so people don't feel hungry. They feel very satiated. Uh, but it really just is about shifting the kind of foods you eat. And I think it kind of comes back to our true paleo forefathers, where we were still mostly hunters, or excuse me, we were mostly gatherers. You know, we killed when we could, but, you know, we didn't necessarily eat meat every day. So, you know, meat was part of the diet, but it wasn't a huge part of the diet. So I think it probably more closely reflects that. 
the third part of the plan is really treating the active infection. So I go through very specific herbal protocols that I've used personally and that I've used with my patients. And there are many, many, many herbal protocols out there. Uh, there's not right or wrong. They're just different. So my feeling is, you know, when you start in any kind of herbal protocol, you know, give it six to eight weeks, give it a fair shake to see how you feel. And if you feel like you're improving, stay with it. And if there's no change in the way you feel, then, you know, feel free to move on to one of the other protocols. But the goal of this is, you know, not just to help reduce the microbial load or, you know, get rid of the infection, but, you know, herbs do so many other things that antibiotics don't do. You know, they're anti-inflammatory, they help promote better circulation, uh, you know, they just do so many other things that we don't get with antibiotics. So, again, I think they work very synergistically with the body instead of against it. The fourth part of the plan is really about controlling environment. Uh, I'm an environmental medicine doctor by training, so, you know, there are things you can do to control your world where you're not exposing yourself to toxins and toxicants, so things like, you know, chemicals and pesticides and herbicides and, you know, air fresheners and all these different things that can tax your immune system. So it's really about cleaning up your home. And I very specifically talk about mold. You know, mold exposure is the one thing I think mimics Lyme more than anything else. And I come across so many people that, you know, we start treating their Lyme, they're not getting a lot better. And we come to find out down the line that they've got mold in their house. And that mold is actually what's causing a lot of their symptoms. So, you know, mold is uh, one of those things that mimics Lyme very closely. And depending on where you live in the world, uh, some places have more mold exposure than others. But again, if you've been feeling unwell for a long time and you've got a lot of these Lyme symptoms and you're doing Lyme treatment and you're not feeling a lot better, it would definitely be worth investigating mold. So, you know, controlling the environment is something that anybody can, can do fairly mm -hmm. easily. And then the fifth step is really, uh, again, lifestyle factors. So, you know, how do you manage stress? You know, how do you move your body? So I talk about different types of, you know, gentle exercise that people can engage. You know, some people with Lyme are very ill, and, you know, the thought of doing anything physical is challenging. But I think, you know, no matter what your, your level of illness is, there's something you can do to get your body moving a little bit. Uh, I mean, when I was in the throes of Lyme, I would literally just sit on the floor and stretch, and that was about all I could do. Mm -hmm. But it was a start. Yeah, uh, you're so right. So even, some, even something as simple as that can be beneficial. And the other big thing is sleep. You know, I see so many people that once they get Lyme, they just don't sleep well. And when you sleep, particularly that deep restorative sleep, you know, that's when your body repairs and restores itself. That's when the neurons repair themselves. So all that healing, you know, really happens when you're in that deep sleep. And if you're not getting that, you're just missing out on your body's natural capacity to heal itself. So, you know, we talk about a lot of natural strategies to help encourage uh, better sleep. And, you know, the one thing I'll mention to your listeners I think is really important nowadays is Wi-Fi and all the mm -hmm. EMFs that we're getting yeah. exposed to. So 100%. I'm an advocate. Yeah, at night, turn off your Wi-Fi, turn off your router, get rid of your smart meters if you can. You know, there's a lot of things you can do to be proactive to protect yourself. And, you know, we're just getting bombarded now with all these EMFs yeah. and uh, without really understanding the health consequences. But for someone, again, who's already compromised, it can just be another thing that, that kind of throws them off. So, um, again, that, that fifth chapter is really just about uh, how you manage all those lifestyle factors. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's a very comprehensive book, um, and we can find it on Amazon, all the, the notary spots, I'm assuming. Um, yes. Perfect. Okay. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, Dr. Engels. The book is called The Lime Solution. And again, you can find it on Amazon, all your favorite book uh, website channels. Um, and 
everybody. We will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.